Hey, Acts chapter 4, and um, Alex is going to stay with me with the slides back there, but I want to really just start our time this morning uh, with uh, a few questions, and, and here they are. Let's just put them on the screen. Uh, there's two of them. Okay, here we go. Where do we go when we feel threatened or alone? What do we do? Uh, next one. Come on, man. We can do this together. There's two of them. Did you put the second one up? Is that it? What do you do when things seem dark or desperate? All right, go back to the first one. All right, we, we're going to work our way through this. Where do we go when we feel threatened or alone? What do we do when things seem dark or desperate? All right, we're going to get it, all right? You're going to have to pay attention with me this morning. So, so here's the deal. Maybe you're feeling like that after a week full of ballot counting, <laughs> or maybe you're feeling that way after a week that we have um, kind of broke through another ceiling of COVID results in our county. Uh, maybe you feel this way because you're quarantined again. We have like three or four families online this morning because of being quarantined. Uh, maybe you feel that way because you have a son that has lost a leg this week. Or maybe you feel that way because uh, we have loved ones that have passed away in our church this week. When, when life goes sideways, whatever that looks like for you, when life goes sideways, what do we do? And where do we go? And those are two really good questions for us this morning because the apostles are going to help us answer those questions in Acts chapter 4. Can I go ahead and just give you the big idea in case you fall asleep? All right, here's the big idea of where we're going this morning. It's going to be on the screen, Lord willing, and the creeks don't rise. Uh, it says this. The spirit-empowered believer is unstoppable. The spirit-empowered believer is unstoppable. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, okay, let's stop right there. Remember from last week's sermon, Acts chapter 3, there was a miracle that led to a message, right? Do you remember this story? This lame man from birth, he hasn't been able to walk, is daily carried by his friends to a gate called Beautiful right outside the temple where the Jewish believers would go in and out. Every day, sit there by his friends so he could reach out a hand, beg for money so he could eat, so he could live, right? And in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, on their way to afternoon prayers at the temple, past the beautiful gate, past this man that is begging for money. And just like every other Jew that had come by, he extends his hand to Peter and John and asks them for money. And Peter says, I don't have any money. But we know from last week's story what Peter had was much better than money. He had a miracle, right? Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, get up and walk. Forty years 
We're going to find out today. 40 years this man had been crippled, unable to walk. And Peter says, get up and walk. Here, give me your hand. Let's go. And as he begins to help him up, the bones start getting in place. And well, what, I think it was me and Bert after church last week. Bert goes, do you think he had to learn how to walk? Like, I mean, this is for the first time ever walking. And i like, maybe, but, but we know the miracle went from sitting to standing. And then it says he goes leaping and praising God into the temple. So he learned really fast. So he goes running into the temple and he's worshiping God. Wouldn't you? 40 years of begging for food because you couldn't work, because you couldn't walk, and because of Peter and John, you're now running through the temple. You would be praising God too. And this commotion began to turn heads in the temple. This chaos began to draw a crowd. And Peter sees this. Peter sees crowd drawing and the people starting to question and he turns this moment into an opportunity and Peter preaches a message into this man's miracle we talked about the sermon he gave last week we summarized it in three points the greatness of our sin the greatness of Jesus our resurrected savior and our only response is to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus as the hope and salvation over our sins. That's the sermon. Now, it took Peter a long time to preach it, but that's the sermon. The greatness of our sin, the greatness of our Savior, repent and believe. And here at the beginning of chapter 4, Peter is still preaching that sermon to the crowds. And that's when it starts to get awkward. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. So the temple brass shows up in the middle of Peter's sermon, and they confront Peter and John. So it gets a little awkward. It'd be like me preaching, and then somebody could stand and go, no, it's wrong. Stop. It'd get a little awkward, right? Verse 2 gives us a little bit more insight. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. So here we're starting to get some <coughs> sorry, insight to why the leaders are so upset. Jesus is a polarizing figure. I mean, he claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. Jesus claimed to be the truth and the life. These claims are extreme. These claims are they're divisive. Specifically here, they are disturbed that the apostles were teaching resurrection of the dead. You see, the Sadducees, the, the leaders here, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, they considered this teaching blasphemy. Really, they considered it a crime against the temple teaching. It's why the Sadducees were so sad, you see. All right, tough crowd. Verse 3. Verse 3. Here's how serious this is. They arrested them. Like, this is not just a debate. This is the authority showing up and saying, no, this is wrong. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail. 
into mourning. This was a serious crime, so Peter and John was arrested. That puts a damper on the sermon, by the way. If I was to be arrested by the cops here this morning, it would just be awkward, and it would probably put, okay, all right, so I guess we go to lunch. I don't know. You know, it, just, we don't, it, get, it can get really awkward really fast, so it kind of put a damper on the sermon when the authorities show up mid-sermon and arrest the preacher. You would think that the crowd's probably scattered, right? Like, we don't want to be next. We don't want to associate with this kind of rhetoric. That's not what happened. The crowds respond to Peter's preaching, and while they're being handcuffed and sent away, it's the largest altar call we've ever seen. Thousands upon thousands. In fact, what's it say? Verse 4. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000, not even counting the women and children, 5,000 men. What's going on here? The spirit-empowered believer is unstoppable. Throw them in prison. It doesn't matter. You can't stop the gospel. Throughout the history of the New Testament church, persecution always produced more people of faith. Opposition fans the flames and spreads the gospel. Opposition to the preaching of the gospel does not extinguish its flames. In fact, from history it shows quite the opposite. The fans are flamed and the gospel is spread like fire from Jerusalem. To Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus predicted. Verse 5. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Then we have those that were there. Evanus the high priest was there, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and they demanded by what power or in whose name have you done this? <laughs> two thoughts here, verse 7. Number one, do they not already know the answer to their own question? Right? I mean, Peter and John... All they've done is preach Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that this has been done. It's in Jesus' name that we are preaching. But the leaders, in a way, have kind of taken the ball and they've just kind of set it on the tee. And it's, it's ready to be knocked out of the park. But the question is, what does Peter and John do with it? And here's my second thought before we go on. <coughs> is it possible that just for a moment... Luke 22, Peter shows up and cowers under the pressure and denies Christ like he did in Luke 22. Let me ask this. What's the difference in Acts 4, Peter, and Luke 22, Peter? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said 
to them. So stop before we go on. There's no sign of cowering here. Okay? I don't think he's going to deny. In fact, the ball is on the tee, and Peter is just about ready to knock it out of the park. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter says, rulers and elders of our people. Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Is that why we're here? Do you want to know how he was healed? I don't think you really do. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. How many times do I have to preach this point to y'all? You're the educated religious people in the room. Peter is hitting all of the hot buttons so far in the opening of his speech, his sermon, his talk, his response. It's Jesus. It's the name of Jesus, the one you crucified, the one whom God raised from. I know you all don't believe in the, but hear me. The one God raised from the dead. And I just see all the leaders, they're triggering. Ah, explosion. He's talking about Jesus again. He's talking about the resurrection again. Peter's not done. Verse 11. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says. I love this. Now in this sermon, he's going to quote Psalm 118. He says, here's, I know, listen, I know you know what Psalm 118, you've got to memorize. Jesus is the one that's being referenced in Psalm 118. Listen, it says this. The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Hey, listen, you're the builders. Jesus is the stone. You thought you killed him. God resurrected. I see it triggering over there, Sadducees. God resurrected him. Now he is the cornerstone of this movement that you will never be able to stop because the spirit-empowered believer is unstoppable. There is salvation in no one else. And that is a slap in the face of the religious people. Why are they so upset, by the way? This is free. I mean, other than demonic influence, they're upset because this Jesus makes them no longer important. They're no longer the authority. They're no longer the go-to. Their teachings, their doctrine, their way of worship is obsolete because there's a new covenant. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter is just declaring, or Peter is just confirming Jesus' declaration that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. There is a greatness of our sin, and there is a greatness of our Savior who has been resurrected. 
That's what Peter is preaching in the midst of these. Peter and John are confronting the unbelief of the believers with the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power unto salvation. No other name, Peter says. I love it. Verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. They were amazed at what? What were they amazed at? What's the scripture say? They were amazed when they saw what? When they saw the boldness. Because these were just ordinary men. These, hadn't, these men hadn't been to the schools of law, but they've walked with the law. They walked with the fulfillment of the law. Ordinary men with extraordinary knowledge of Scripture. Ordinary men with extraordinary wisdom and power. Hey, that's what the work of the Spirit does in the hearts of believers. He takes ordinary men and women, and does extraordinary things in and through them. I love that. I love that in verse 13, it also says they recognize these men as being with Jesus because being in the presence of Jesus produces the boldness. We, we said last week, I don't think Peter ever outstretches his hand to help this man that's been crippled for 40 years from birth. I don't, I don't think he just does that off the cuff. He does that because he's walking in the spirit of God. And I'm just, I'm, I'm playing a little loose with Scripture here, but I can just assume that as this man catches the attention of Peter and John, there's, there's a tugging in, in Peter's heart that's saying, help him up. That doesn't happen to people who just go to church on Sundays. Hey, that, that kind of power doesn't happen to people who decide to take eight months off during COVID. No, this, is, this power happens with men and women who walk daily. They're with Jesus daily. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to a restaurant, people recognize that you have been with Jesus. I love verse 14 too. We can't leave it out. We're not even to the good stuff yet. Just hang on. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. I love that. You can't really argue with a miracle. I just wrote here in my notes, may the fruits of our labor speak for themselves in silencing the critics. I think it has to do with the New Testament scriptures that tells us as the church to be blameless. Let the fruits of our labor, let the light that we shine in our daily lives silence the critics. Verse 15. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. And here's what they conferred about. What should we do with these men? They ask each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak in, to anyone in Jesus' name ever again. The name Jesus must never be spoken from their lips again. So we get a little bit of insight of what's going on inside the chamber. 
But here's my question. What's going on outside the chamber? What's going on back down in the dungeon where Peter and John is waiting for the results? We get no insight into their thoughts. We get no insight into their emotions. But is it possible that as they wait for the verdict, they are feeling like maybe some of you are feeling this week, threatened or alone? Is it possible that they are feeling the darkness and despair? We don't know. But we do know in verse 19, or I'm sorry, we do know in verse 18 that they were brought back before the council. They called them back, and here's what they commanded them. Never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And you and I are sitting in these seats today because Peter and John denied their request. If the name of Jesus would have never been spoken again, you and I would not be in this room. But here's the response. This is Luke 22. Remember, he denied even knowing Jesus. I never followed, no. But in Acts 4, as the council now leans in, they've given the verdict, they've given the command. Now they're leaning in to hear the response of Peter and John. I love this. Peter and John replies, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We respect you as an authority. But you're not our final authority. And there's a lot of things you could ask us to do, and we will do. But never speaking the name of Jesus again, you don't have that authority. Verse 20, we cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. (laughs) Why not? Why not? We cannot stop speaking We cannot stop telling people about everything we have seen and heard. Why not? Because Peter and John and all the apostles understood their mission is Acts 1-8. Church, you and I must understand our mission. If you are a believer and you are still breathing, it's for one reason. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So you can be witnesses of me Everywhere, once you are empowered by my spirit. That's the mission of the church. It's their purpose for existing. It's our purpose in existing. And verse 21, the council then threatened them further. We don't know what's said there, but they made it very clear, you better not speak in the name of Jesus again. The council threatened them further, then they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was still praising God over this miraculous thing that had happened. From this lame man that had been, had been lame for more than 40 years. And then I don't want us to miss what happens next. As soon as they were freed, Peter And John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priest and elders had said. Peter and John immediately returned to their community of believers. Why? Verse 20. Why? Why? To be strengthened and encouraged. Why? To be stirred and emboldened. And how do they do that? Verse 24 says. 
when they heard the report, when all of the believers had heard what had happened to John and Peter and what the council, council had told John and Peter, when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together to pray to God. Stop. The answer to how are they going to be encouraged, how are they going to be emboldened, is through the prayer of the believers. And this is a prayer that we must not ignore because there is some framework here, church, that will change your perspectives on life. What would you, how would you start your prayer? If somebody came in here and said, listen, we were arrested this week and we were threatened. And it's not just a threat for us, it's a a threat for me and John, it's a threat for all of us in this room that we are no longer allowed to preach the name of Jesus or else we'll be imprisoned or even maybe executed. And somebody says, let's pray. What's the first line out of your mouth? It should be the first line that was out of these apostles' mouth. Continue in verse 24. Oh, sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, everything in heaven, earth, and the sea. That means that God is not only the creator of everything we see, God is the creator of everything you experience. He's sovereign. We cannot, exhort, we cannot ignore the framework of this prayer. It starts with the sovereignty of God, the acknowledging that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful, that God is everywhere, that he is the creator of all things. We need to lead with that. Because once we got through that, perhaps whatever's on the back end of that doesn't seem so stressful. We come broken and burdened, and we're like, Oh, yeah. Oh, sovereign Lord. I'm here because something unexpected happened and I am freaking out, but God, it didn't catch you off guard. You're sovereign. You're all-knowing. God, you gave this permission to happen. I don't understand it, but somehow I'm finding hopes rising up and trust is settling in because you've got this. You're in control of this. I'm freaking out right now because I thought I had to be in control, but I'm being reminded that you're in control. And and then in their prayer, they start to pray Psalm 2. They go on to say, uh, why are the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against the Messiah. They're just praying Psalm 2. Verse 25, just, he continues through, uh, in fact, this is happening right here in this very city. Verse 27, for Herod, Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, all the people of Israel were united against Jesus, your holy servant whom you anointed, but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Again, they're, they're just being reminded, they're, they're referencing the sovereignty, the all-knowing, the all-power of their God. 
nothing's happened that you haven't written. My favorite part of the prayer. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants fill in the blank. Again, we're back into journey 2020. How would you finish? And now you've been threatened. You've been threatened. You're feeling the darkness. You're feeling the despair. You're feeling lonely. You're feeling threatened. And you're asking, oh Lord, hear their threats. See what's happening to me. And give me your servant safety. Prosperity. I don't know, fill in the blanks of what the American Christian would pray here. Because here's what the apostles pray. Oh Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Hey guys, I just need to let you know the authorities said we can no longer speak in the name of Jesus or they're going to arrest us. They might even execute us. Let's pray. God, give us boldness to preach louder. Give us boldness to preach harder. Is that what we would pray? When the world is crushing in on you, would you pray, oh, sovereign Lord, give me your servant the power to preach Jesus in the midst of this moment? Even if it's the preaching of Jesus that's gotten you into the moment. It's the preaching of Jesus that's going to get you through the moment. Whether here or eternity. No illusions here. Many have preached the name of Jesus and they gave their lives for it. But I'm telling you, every single one of them would stand on this stage today and say, the moment I crossed over from earth to heaven, worth it. If I, if I would have known then what I know now, I would, have pray, I would have prayed, I would have preached with even greater boldness. Verse 30. Continue the prayer. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There's no sign here that they're letting up. And after the prayer, I love this, verse 31. After their prayer, the meeting place shook. I find that interesting. There's a few places in scriptures where we see the ground shake. It happened in Isaiah, him in the temple. It happened with Jesus at the cross, and it happens here. And it's just simply this. The, the shaking of the, the, the building here is a sign of God's presence. I think even more than that, it's a, it's a sign of God's pleasure. God's pleasure with what they're praying. I, 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 it's not wrong for us to pray for safety. I'm not saying that. It's not wrong for us to pray for prosperity. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that here, that's not what they prayed for. Here, they're praying for boldness. And if there's anything, listen, let's just be honest, church. 
we're really light on praying for boldness. We're, we're heavy praying for safety and prosperity in America. But perhaps we're a little lighter on praying for boldness in the midst of the circumstance, the situation, the persecution, the oppression. The meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. You can never speak the name of Jesus again. Yeah, right. The spirit-empowered believer is unstoppable. You can't stop me. You can kill me, and you still can't stop me. Chapter 4 is full of confrontation and persecution and threats. But I just want you to notice the book ends here. And I know we still have a little bit of chapter 4 for next week, but the book ends of chapter 4 is this. The apostles boldly preaching Jesus. The beginning of chapter 4, lots of sideways stuff. And at the end of chapter 4, they, empowered by the Spirit, is proclaiming and preaching the name of Jesus. The Spirit-empowered believer is unstoppable. But here's the question. Believer in what? Can I, sh- can I share with you really quickly, and then I'm done, uh, four things that I see in this passage of Scripture. Like, oh, my goodness. No, they're fast. Just, I see four, th- th- observation real quick, four things that I think that the apostles really believed here that made them unstoppable. And if we really believe them, it will make us unstoppable too. Number one is this. They really believed the message they preached. Like, it wasn't just talking points from any school they'd been to or any training they had had. They had walked and talked with Jesus. They, they saw him perform miracles. They saw him live perfectly before them. They saw him arrested and tried. They saw him crucified, and they saw him resurrected. The gospel message, again, was not just talking points that they had memorized. This was true, and this was their life. And here's my question. Do we really believe the message of the gospel? Or have we just learned some talking points that Jesus lived a perfect life, he died a horrible death, he arose victorious over sin and death? And we've memorized those things, but do we really believe in the resurrected Christ? Do we really believe that the same power that resurrected Christ from the dead is in us. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf? Do we really believe that he died a horrible death on our behalf? Do we really believe that he arose victorious over our sin and our death so that we could have life eternal? And do we really believe that that message should not stop with us? They really believed it. It's hard to preach anything. It's hard to talk about anything with conviction if you don't really believe it. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't, man, I can't give that to you. Nobody around you, your mom and dad can't give it to you. But the Holy Spirit can. Can we pray what the, the other gentleman in the New Testament prayed? I believe, but help my unbelief. God, give me such a great conviction for the message of the gospel. God, open my eyes to see it in ways I've never seen it before as I walk and talk with Jesus. May he become more and more and more and more real to me. The second thing is they really believed that their mission was to be witnesses. Jesus was the ride or die. 
their best life now only had one option. And that was to make much of Jesus in their lives and in their deaths. Do we really believe that Acts 1.8 is still the mission for us believers? The third thing is they really believed in the power of gospel community and prayer. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. But their actions here in this text speaks much louder than their words. Immediately it says, Peter and John, after being released, they go running back to their brothers and sisters in Christ. To do what? To pray. To pray. To pray to the sovereign creator of the universe. And they're encouraged and they're stirred and they're emboldened. And they walk out of that room preaching with even greater boldness. Our temptation is to run from community and prayer sometimes. Maybe because of our own unbelief in the power of both those things. The fourth thing is this. They really believed that their God was sovereign. I want to end with this one. They really believed in the sovereignty of their God. They really believed that their days were preordained. Psalm 119 or 139, Psalm 139. They really believe that everything God does is determined beforehand according to his will, Acts 4. They really did believe that nothing happens without God's permission. I've said this before, that doesn't necessarily make things that come in our life easy, but it should make it easier, Right? Knowing that our God has not been caught off guard, knowing that our God has given permission, and it's therefore a purpose. What if we prayed with that same confidence as the apostles? Oh, sovereign Lord. If I could just give you some homework with this week, I think that'd be it. Start every day with that line, with that sentence in your praying. Before you say anything else, Oh, sovereign Lord, creation of heaven, earth, and the sea, and everything in them. Perhaps before you even get to the ask, you'll feel your heart beginning to change. How do we know if we're praying Believing in the sovereignty of God. I don't really know, but I just wrote down this. If you're more focused on your problems than God's power, you might not be praying with God's sovereignty in mind. If your praying is more focused on your problem than God's power, but I really do have a problem. God already knows your problem. God is the one that allowed that problem to come into your life. And God is already at work in that problem to make much of his name. All you need to do is acknowledge his sovereignty and then ask God to give you boldness to shine your light of who he is and what he has done greater in that darkness. That will change the way we pray. God, keep us safe. Now, God, if things do go sideways today, Help me keep my eyes focused on you as the creator of all things, all-knowing, all-powerful. God, remind me you're writing this and give me power to see where you're at work in this so I can shine 
my light in this darkness. That's different. That's a different kind of prayer. But that's how the apostles prayed. That's the kind of prayer that shakes rooms. And I told them in our little meeting Wednesday night, like, I want to sit in some of those prayer meetings where the room shakes. And I'm not talking about an earthquake. I'm talking about the presence and the approval of God resting on our prayers. So let me ask this in closing. What are you afraid of right now? What in your life right now keeps you up at night? What is stressing you out? What's the first thing that you think of in the morning that kind of just makes your heart begin to sink as you're reminded? What has you hopeless and feeling lonely? What are you being threatened by? Did your candidate not win this week? Did COVID show up somehow in your home? Is death closing in on your marriage or your career or perhaps even on a loved one? Oh, sovereign Lord. What if in the midst of whatever is scaring you, whatever is paralyzing you in fear, whatever is threatening you, what if this week, instead of being focused on that, you focus on the sovereignty of God and you just pray this? Oh, sovereign Lord. Empower me to speak Jesus into that moment. I'm not asking you to take it away. Hey, do you notice they didn't ask, the apostles didn't, oh, oh, sovereign Lord, fix this. They could have. We would have read that and not even thought anything else about it. What if this week we quit asking God to fix things and we just focus on his sovereignty and ask him to use us in the midst of whatever, whatever he's doing in the midst of it? It might not change your circumstance, but it will change your heart. And then we, like the apostles, can walk out of the room. Nothing's changed. The threat is still there. The command is still there, but we can walk out of the room in boldness of knowing God is in control. Amen?